is on the uh, Olongon family of scribes. And we had the opening lecture last week, and uh, we'll have another one next week. But today, we have um, a real live scribe to talk to us. Uh, Tim O'Neill needs no introduction, really, to this audience. He's a medieval historian. He's a teacher but also a calligrapher and a scribe, and he knows a great deal about the making of manuscripts. And today, he's going to talk to us about Joseph O'Longoyne and the manuscript facsimiles of the Royal Irish Academy. So, Tim O'Neill. Thank you very much. Um, this uh, talk today falls uh, roughly into uh, three parts. I, I will give you a kind of a general introduction to the printing um, and the production of facsimiles, and then a little bit about how they did it, which is very complicated, but uh, we'll see. And then finally, the detail on uh, Joseph, who worked here in the academy, and. Uh, in the course of his work on the facsimiles, two of which are here in front, you can look at them afterwards, and there's another one over there in the, in the display. He copied out, for lithography, lithographical purposes, 1,000, very close to 1,000 pages, apart from his other work. Uh, anyway, the second half of the 19th century witnessed a remarkable flurry of interest in manuscripts. Original manuscripts were leaving private ownership and were being acquired with government help by libraries and institutions. For example, the Academy here in 1843 acquired the Hodges and Smith collection and another collection in 1883, the Ashburnham collection of manuscripts. Now, in tandem with this, and to some extent because these works were now accessible to scholars, there were editions of texts appearing regularly in publications, such as those of the Oceanic Society, the Irish Archaeological and Celtic Society, as well as the Royal Irish Academy's own manuscript series. Now, most of these texts, they contain translations of the works on facing pages, with the usual footnotes and so on. And uh, the text on one, in one language on one side and the English on the opposite page, set in type. Now most of these, um, in the neighbouring island, the great project that we refer to as the Rolls series, that began in 1858 and was lavishly funded by government and continued until 1911 with uh, the publication of 99 works in a total of 253 volumes. Now, all these works that I mentioned so far were editions from manuscripts that were typeset and printed in the conventional way by letterpress printing. Now, alongside these books, there was a parallel development in the issuing of facsimiles of manuscripts. This was in large measure due to technical advances in the printing industry. In the 19th century, basically, there were three principal printing processes in use. The first one is the one we all know about. It's, we call it re relief printing. It's by far the most common method, which when the print stands up to 
a certain height and a roller with ink goes over it, passes over the raised surface. Then paper is pressed on it, which only touches the raised surface and hence the printing is done. Words are set in metal type and pages printed off in this way. Also, wood blocks would be carved and printed in this way. The second type is called intaglio printing. Here, a different method is used. The design is cut into a flat surface. And then when the ink is applied all over the surface, it's then wiped off. But the ink remains in the recessed design. The print is then taken by pressing paper over the whole surface so that the ink is picked out of the recesses. Now, copper plate engraving is a very good example of this. And in the 19th century, particularly, a lot of illustrations of archaeological objects and so on were made in this way. Now, the third type is what we're going to be dealing with today. Its official name is planographic printing, which means printing from a plane or completely flat surface. Now, the way it works is that the design that's applied is in nature different from the surface on which it is formed, so that when an inked roller passes over the whole surface, it only inks the design. When paper is pressed onto the whole surface, only the pigment from the design is transferred to it. Lithography, which was invented in the 1790s, it works in this way. Now, as this method was used in the production of the facsimiles, I'll give you a little bit more detail about the process. First thing you have to get is a slab of Bavarian limestone. This provides the original uh, printing surface for the lithographic process. And on it, marks were commonly made with a greasy crayon or a special type of ink. The stone was then prepared chemically to enhance its ability to retain the greasy marks and to allow the other parts to reject the printing ink. Taking a print from the stone involved dampening it and then applying ink. The greasy marks attracted the printing ink while the moistened stone rejected it. I hope you got all that because <laughs> it's not that easy to follow, but basically that's what was happening. Now, what about manuscript facsimiles? The earliest published facsimile of a substantial part of a manuscript was of an 8th century Ecternach manuscript of St. Jerome that's now in Paris in Bibliothèque Nationale. The script was care copied carefully and the lineation of the original was followed almost entirely and it was fitted onto 25 engraved plates between 1627 and 1633 and they printed nine copies of it. The next was a major work of paleography by a French scholar called Mabillon in 1681 and he had a lot of engraved facsimiles in his uh, supplement to that book. Now things changed in the 19th century with lithography that I just described. It made possible the recreation of complete books. For example, the Emperor Maximilian's prayer book by Albrecht Dürer was produced, reproduced in 1817. These were very expensive, highly priced 
but there was a new market for publishers, booksellers and collectors. Now there was another method used for creating facsimiles, mainly of early printed books in Canabola and so on. It made a brief appearance in the 1840s and 50s. This was called anastatic printing and it required taking a book apart, for example, dampening it with acid, which means soaking the actual pages for up to eight days in nitric acid. And then the image side of the paper was pressed against a metal plate, creating an etched reversed image, which could be printed. But as you can imagine, it was probably due to the nightmares it engendered in librarian, librarians that this method never became very popular. However, there's an interesting uh, example of it being used. When John O'Donovan and O'Curry were working on the Brehan Laws, they made uh, transcripts. And in order to make copies of their transcripts, this method was used. Just the transcripts. Now, they weren't using it on the manuscripts themselves. The third, uh, a very important development then after the lithography was called photozincography. This was... Um, discovered, according to himself, by a man called Henry James, who worked for the Arden Survey. He was the director of the Arden Survey in England in 1860. In this process, a black and white photographic negative image was imprinted on a zinc plate, and it was printed off in a way similar to the lithography in, on stone. Zinc had advantages over stone, as the plates were much lighter and more durable and lasted longer. Because it was a photographic method, it could combine accuracy, cheapness, and respect for original objects. First to be printed in this method was the Doomsday Book. It was done by James in the Arden Survey headquarters in Southampton. In 1867, J.H. Todd had suggested that the Irish manuscripts could be done similarly, and he produced a list prepared by William Hennessy and revised by himself. The Scottish National Manuscripts were published in 1872 and all this work was done in Southampton by the draftsmen and printers of the Arden Survey. In 1874, the first volume of the facsimiles of the National Manuscripts of Ireland, which were edited by the librarian of this uh, establishment, J.T. Gilbert, that was produced, the first volume, in 1874. 1875 saw the publication of a full photographic reproduction of a manuscript for the first time. This was the Utrecht Psalter and heralded a new approach to manuscript reproduction. And in 1887, the Book of Ballymote was re reproduced photographically by the Royal Irish Academy. Ballymote was published in photographic form mainly because Joseph O'Longon had died in 1880 and there was just no one to take his place. The Royal Irish Academy was quite up to date in taking advantage of the developments of printing in the 19th century and in its manuscript series and publications, uh, conventional letterpress printing was employed. This involved setting the text in both Irish and Roman type. In fact, the Academy used Irish type as early as 1788 in the second volume of its transactions. But this traditional method was expensive, time-consuming and it needed a lot of proofreading. Now it seems to me that three things occurred in the early 1860s 
that led to an interest in the idea of facsimiles in the academy. First, in 1860, Eugene O'Curry's Lectures on the Manuscript Materials of Early Irish History was published in Dublin with an appendix of facsimiles for the purpose of which he wrote, the purpose of which was to lay before the learned in other countries a complete set of examples of the handwriting of the best Gaelic scribes from the very earliest period. And he wrote in his introduction that these facsimiles have been executed with admirable correctness in the establishment of Messrs. Forster, lithographers of this city. Secondly, in 1861, J.T. Gilbert, he was appointed librarian at the Academy and he was, as we shall see, a great enthusiast for facsimiles. And the third point was that in 1865, the government provided funding to the Academy to appoint an Irish scribe. So that year, a manuscript subcommittee was set up to deal with this special grant of £200 from the government. This was specifically for the salary of an Irish scribe and the cataloguing and printing of Irish manuscripts. This committee met regularly from January 1866. Initially, it dealt largely with cataloguing ma matters until the meeting in April 1869, when Gilbert first raised the issue of lithographic copies of manuscripts, beginning with Laura the Book of the Duncow. Now, Gilbert had written to Whitley Stokes, who, who was in India, the same month, lamenting the death of O'Donovan and O'Curry and the poor health of Todd, who died actually two months later. He proposed to Stokes that, quote, our best work would be to print some of our oldest texts accurately from manuscripts, but without translations or annotations. We have, fortunately, at the Academy, the best Irish penman living, Mr. O'Longon. And I have for some time past been anxious to bring his talents to a practical bearing in the shape of lithographic writing, and have succeeded so far as to have already some pages of Lornahira on the stone, of which I shall send you proofs as soon as possible. The copy is made in the most careful manner by O'Longon, and before being transferred to the stone, every line and letter on the page is checked over by Mr. O'Looney. I hope you will approve of the plan. At all events, give me credit for trying to do the best under adverse circumstances. Now, just a, men a mention of Brian O'Looney. He was a, a friend of O'Curry, worked for the Academy. According to himself, he, he took part in the 1848 uh, rebellion with uh, Smith O'Brien. And he, Smith O'Brien was later a um, patron of his and commissioned manuscripts from, from him, which are here in the Academy now. But he was also a controversial figure among other scholars and scribes, and nobody was quite sure where, where he learned his Irish to start with. Anyway, to go back to the Gilbert and the committee, Gilbert must have made a good case to the committee and probably argued along the same lines to them as in his letter to Stokes, stressing that lithography was an inexpensive process and had the great advantage of having in-house Joseph, Joseph Olongon. In fact, he may have pointed out then 
what was said later, that the cost of producing the lithographic copy of the text would not be greater than the cost of making just one copy, which would be required for library purposes, and which they had to do, for example, with the Book of Lismore. As the other expenses of paper and printing off, they would be met by the amounts re received from subscribers. He may also have mentioned how lithography was invaluable in dealing with non-Latin texts and had been very successfully successful in France, especially in the reproduction of hieroglyphics. The technique to be used in the reproduction of the Royal Irish Academy manuscripts would not, you'll be glad to hear, uh, require the scribe to write backwards with a greasy pencil on a heavy slab of limestone. Rather, he would make a transcript of each page on, special, on sheets of specially prepared transfer paper. This transfer paper would be supplied by the lithographers. Technicians in the printing works would then use Olongon sheets to transfer the script to the stone from which it would be printed. The committee then authorised the librarian to have two pages of Laurenahira lithographed as specimens and to have estimates for lithographing the entire manuscripts procured. Things moved fast and within four weeks, six pages of Laurenahira in lithograph by Olongon and revised by Oluni were submitted to the committee on the 1st of June, along with an estimate from the printer for printing from Messrs Forrester of Dublin. These were the people who had done O'Curry's manuscript materials earlier. The estimate included the supply of the special transfer paper and the expense of transferring to the stone. The printer also submitted figures for printing on parchment and on vellum. They had fancy ideas that time. Uh, the subcommittee, after detailed examination of the printed proofs, were satisfied with the work of the scribe and the reviser and recommended to Council to authorise a subscription for printing Laurenahira and for the librarian to prepare a draft prospectus. We get some idea of the speed at which Olongon worked from his returns uh, submitted at the meeting on the 5th of June, uh, transcribed transcribed for the lithographer, 10 pages, pages 10 to 24, that is 14 pages, revised and on the stone, and page 24 is in the course of revision. He also, during that time, copied O'Curry's description of Laurenahira from the catalogue of the Academy's manuscript, for which he was paid £1.10, and this, of course, was to be typeset as an introduction to the volume. In subsequent meetings, the subcommittee discussed whether to print on tinted paper, which would pick up the tones of the vellum, but this was ruled out due to expense. But two tinted samples were included in the finished book to give an idea of the original. It would appear that some of the more elaborate initials in Laurenahira were engraved from tracings done separately by Arthur Kelly. One year after the first discussion of facsimiles at the meeting in uh, April 1870, 
The prospectus of uh, Lord Hira was approved and other details such as the selling price, uh, which was to be two guineas, and an ad in the review Celtic were dealt with. It was decided that Olongon and Oluni should begin work on the collation and transcription of Brack. At the May meeting of the of the uh, subcommittee, thanks were offered to Miss Margaret Stokes for her design for the cover of Lauranahira, which they regret they were unable to execute due to the lack of funds. Discussions continued at various meetings about Lord Brack, with the recommendation that in December that 200 should be printed and that it be issued in five parts, approximately equal in size. There were congratulations all round in early 1871 with the appearance of the Lower Nahira facsimile. The committee said it reflects high credit on the two Irish scholars, Messrs O'Longon and O'Looney, through whose zealous labours the text of the original has been so faithfully reproduced. It was pointed out that by its present system, the Royal Irish Academy perpetuates and places beyond risk the contents of a unique national manuscript in its custody, which might, through causality, be irrecoverably lost. It also supplies to linguistic students in Ireland and throughout the world the materials which they most desire, namely original texts in their integrity, hitherto available only to those who could study them in our own library. There is every reason to expect that much valuable translation work will be done by the independent action of scholars when texts have been rendered accessible. Now, Laura Brack was to be reproduced on the same principle. That's just a comparison of uh, Laura Nahira, the original on the left, and the facsimile on the right. We come back to that again. It was to be re reproduced on the same principle. Every line corresponds with the original. See there? Um, contracted words and symbols of abbreviations are faithfully reproduced, and the measurement of the writing on the pages agrees closely with that of the manuscript. But Laura Brack was a much bigger operation. It had more than double the number of folios, and the folios in question were also much, much larger than those of uh, Lauren Hira. See? There was a meeting of the committee on the 24th of March 1871 and they discussed a suggestion from council that in future further publications of the academy in the manner of the Lauren Hira should be with an English translation. But the committee replied that based on O'Curry's estimate 2,000 large quarto pages would be required for such a work and it would cost in the region of £3,000. That put them off very quickly. But Laura Brack was going ahead 
and it was lithographed to page 122, which is halfway, by the following June 1872. And also the prospectus and the table of contents was ready. Part one of Lor uh, Brack was published in the autumn, but difficulties had arisen with the lithographer, Mr. Forster, who was looking to charge extra for corrections. And a subcommittee of W.K. Sullivan, J.R. Garston and Gilbert, the librarian, were appointed to report on the matter. There's a lower brack on the left, the original, on the right, the facsimile. Now, they weren't letting the grass grow under their feet in the academy. They knew this was progressing well. So next on the list was a very special plan that the secretary of the academy and Gilbert had that they would discuss with Trinity College quote, with respect to publications of manuscript by combined action and report. Now they had in mind the Book of Leinster. These talks continued in early 1873 with agreement that Trinity were willing to cover the cost of printing and the paper for the project, which would cost £661, and then in return they would receive half the copies printed. But the sticking point was, where was the work of transcription to the transfer paper to be done? The Trinity authorities were very reluctant to let the Book of Leinster leave the premises. However, the Academy Committee met on the 14th of June, 1872, and they drew up nine points in favour of uh, the Book of Leinster being deposited in the Academy for the purpose of lithography. Their points were as follows. Number one, manuscripts were often loaned from Trinity College, even to private individuals. Number two, the Book of Leinster had been restored to Ireland for the purpose of publication. Here they quoted O'Reilly's Irish writers. Number three, the condition of the Book of Leinster was worsening. Number four, double time would be needed for the scribe and the collator if they were to do the work in Trinity because of Trinity Library opening times. Number five, the reduction of the scribe's working time meant a loss of income for the scribe. And if he wants to work on another manuscript to compensate for the loss, then both manuscripts would suffer. Scribe and collator should be able to work as expeditiously and uninterruptedly as possible. 6. If, due to prolongation, Mr. Olongong should, from illness or any other cause, be unable to complete the undertaking, it would probably be impossible to find a scribe so especially qualified to take up what might be undone, and so the publication in facsimile would be impractical. Number seven, there would be better supervision of the work and a better record of time kept if the manuscript was copied in the academy. Number eight, the Royal Irish Academy was more convenient. Manuscripts had already been transcribed and copied there. Number nine, finally, the fireproof room in the academy would guarantee the safety of the manuscript. 
So, on the 25th of October 1873, the President reported that Trinity had agreed to deposit the Book of Leinster in the Academy in portions and to buy the paper in advance. So then they had to go off and get estimates. So first thing was paper similar to that used for Lower Brack, sufficient to print 210 copies with 600 pages in each of uh, the Book of Leinster. <coughs> and then estimates for the lithographing and printing off and the supply of lithographic materials per page. And thirdly, uh, an extra uh, estimate for supplying initial letters and making corrections. The president was to get permission for Olongon and Oluni to have access to Book of Leinster to put the leaves in sequence preparatory to commencing the copy. So all was going ahead then. They started um, sending out estimates and then there was a letter back from the Messrs. Pims for lithographing the Book of Leinster. And I think this letter can explain really the process. Dear Sir, this was a letter to the Academy. Having reconsidered our estimate for lithographing the Book of Leinster and having regard to the experience we have now gained of the contents and style of the work, we think it fair to say that we can now undertake the work at a much lower figure than first quoted. Now, our revised price includes transfer from the transcript, transfer to the stone, cleaning and supplying three first proofs, making tracings of initial letters and all necessary corrections, alterations, additions, preparing for the press and printing 210 copies on paper to be supplied at a uniform charge of 26 shillings per page which sum we shall undertake will cover every contingency relative to supplying you with 210 perfect copies of each page. So all the Academy had to do was to give the transcript transfer done by Olongon and the paper and the printers would do the rest. Now they had an interesting uh, final paragraph. They said, our charge for producing a photolithographic transfer would be about 20 shillings per page. But in the case of photo transfers, we think the charge for printing the same number of copies would be somewhat less, as the corrections would not be so heavy as in the manuscript transfer. Now, these two points uh, seem to have emerged. First of all, that the, the committee fell out with Forster and Co. I think this was over extra charges for corrections, because they had a whole lot of meeting, meetings about these, and. Um, there was very nasty um, exchanges about it. Anyway, Pims got the job for the Book of Leinster uh, because their estimate was inclusive of, of all corrections. Now, the second interesting point is that they were quoting for a photolithographic transfer which would cost 30% less because there would be fewer corrections. Now, sometime during 1874, J.T. Gilbert suffered a breakdown and Robert Atkinson took over as librarian and he assumed charge of the Book of Leinster project. Now, when Gilbert returned to work in 1878, he tried hard, but he failed to resume the editorship of the Book of Leinster facsimile. And when it appeared two years later in 1880, it was Atkinson's name 
that was now given as editor, much to Gilbert's annoyance. But this was the last of the three facsimiles made by Joseph Olungon's transcript transfer. Between the three, he had written out 972 uh, pages. He died um, in 1880. That's a Book of Leinster um, page by him. Now, in the introduction to the Book of Leinster, Atkinson wrote, I leave this sheet open with a sad foreboding that the transcriber would never see published the work he had spent so much labour on. He is at least beyond the reach of praise or blame. I cannot omit the duty of recording here my testimony to the patient and faithful manner in which he discharged his office from the time I had the opportunity of observing him. The work done by him was a labour of love that absorbed his life. Now, as I, you know from that, that Olungon had died actually before the, he never saw the Book of Leinster facsimile uh, printed. But he had done all the work and submitted it. In fact, he had started work on the Book of Ballymote, which was to be the, the next project. Um, and that was the drawing of the famous um, frontispiece in the book that he had made. The Academy have that here. So in 1887, the photographic facsimile of the Book of Ballymote was published, and with it came the end of the hereditary scribal tradition. Now, the difficulties with the whole project of the production of these facsimiles seemed to lay with errors of transcription. And these resulted from a variety of causes. Sometimes the original manuscript was damaged and original scribal errors. Sometimes there was a misreading of the text by Olungon and, and Oluni. And the likes of scholars like Whitley Stokes uh, weren't slow to point out these mistakes. Mm -hmm. Atkinson's reference there to Joseph being beyond the reach of praise or blame probably refers to Stokes' <coughs> attack on the book of uh, Lornahira facsimile and he published a list of 22 mistranscriptions in the review Celtique. Now the Academy Council were very upset about this and they established a committee under Samuel Ferguson to try and examine these mistakes and find out exactly how serious were they. Now they went through the mistakes carefully, some of which they accepted in general, uh, and these were very small errors of transcription. And Ferguson and the others really, they wrote to Stokes and they pointed out that his criticism was really completely over the top. I, I thought it was interesting to note that um, looking at Bergen and Best's 1929 edition of uh, Lauren Hira, which was an accurate transcript in Roman type, uh, there were 61 corrections uh, in a, a list that came out with it, to which a further 30 were added in 1953 with the reprint. So Olungon wasn't doing too bad with 22 mistakes in the whole thing. Now, the other drawback that's connected with um, the facsimiles was, you see it there, it's the in, it was the inability of a reader to detect different hands in the facsimile as the whole lot was written out by 
shows the full gone. You can see there uh, on the left side the original, halfway down the second column there's another scribe writing. That was a piece that was added to the original in 1388 or before 1388 by one of the O'Quirnian scribes. And you can see from Joseph's that it's, okay, he, he makes a new paragraph, but you can't tell really that it's a different scribal hand. This is a bit of a drawback. And also in the, the lower bracket, see down at the bottom there, there's a, one of the uh, MacAgon scribes added something in the 16th century at the bottom there, and Joseph reproduces it very clearly on the other page, but you wouldn't tell, you couldn't tell from Joseph that it was a different scribe who added it. So that was a bit of a drawback. But I think looking at the two there on the, together, you can see one of the great advantages of the facsimile is that the clarity of the work. It's the black and white. So when the first um, of the photographic facsimiles came out, there was a big oligone from the scholars saying that they couldn't make work out uh, the, the work very clearly because, of course, they, the photograph picked up the dark tones of the vellum in black and white, and you had black writing on sort of very, very dark vellum. So it was much more difficult to read than the, the facsimiles. So... That's the, 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 the problem that they had with the facsimiles, the clarity, and that lasted on uh, right up until the present day, where we now have the, the wonders of ISOS, and we can enlarge and reduce, and these problems have begun to recede. So thank you very much. That's Thanks very much, Tim, for that wonderful um, erudite lecture. Um, we can take some.